Thank you for joining us tonight in the Creepypasta Book Club, the podcast where we read, analyze, and discuss significant creepypastas, no sleeps, and web horror flash fiction. We are your hosts, Jonah. And Wednesday. And today, we finish Mother Horse Eyes. Narratives 86 to 100. When Nick was drinking, he used to go out of his way to make himself cry, just for the feeling of release. The same is true for his memories of the mother, revisiting them so often that he can't identify reality from imagination. He remembers that she was made of parts sewn together, that she kept a bag full of children, that she would take them to the basement, and she and Nick would do things to them. It's in these moments, thinking of Sean's story, that he wishes he could go back to drinking. A young arthropod moves out of the crowded burrow. They want their friend Mara to come and live with them. They're sick of eating sea flowers, but buying livestock from the priests who claim it comes from the womb of the mother is such a hassle. Food is scarcer. The ocean dies a little more every year. But Mara finally comes, shiny and new, and they show one another pictures, colors to express themselves. They go back to the cave, and Mara likes it, but she won't stay with them. She comes often, and they feed her sea flowers. One day, she wants them to go to the temple to get livestock. She wants meat, and sea flowers taste like sand. Hurt, they curl up and wait for her to leave. She comes back one day with a parcel of meat. She has become a priestess, and wants to take care of her old friend, despite their disdain for the priests. They eat, but they desperately want to know where this meat comes from, and with great reluctance... Mara shows them the womb. A letter from a little girl named Anne to her granddaughter, learning true English from her grandmother, one of the last of the mountain-born. She has never been to Earth, the far world, the world of cats and roses, the world of the secret little man on the cross her grandmother is carving for her. Nick is moving out of the sober house. He can't stand living with Sean, and he can't stand living here anymore, and he can't stand not knowing how Mother Horse-Eyes ends. Life doesn't end on the big climactic revelation, so why should this story? But whatever he does, he won't go to that warehouse. He just won't. He'll make something else up. He's moving to a little artsy neighborhood to be with his people, and he's going to start... Hey. No, this isn't right. Why is Nick making this choice seemingly out of nowhere? It's not believable. He needs to have a a bigger conflict that pushes him over the edge. A novel needs more linear logic to it than real life. The bigger the change in the character, the bigger the event must be. Right? Edit this and come back to it. You can do better. But he doesn't. Nick publishes the narrative as is. He's going to start drinking again. As a child, Nick loses his mother at the store and thinks she turned into someone else to trick him. A few years later, it happens again, but this time the store clerks can't shepherd him back to his real mother. The mother with horse eyes has taken up residence, but he doesn't know that yet. He thinks they have gone to church without him. Lucky day. No more Sunday school for little Nick. He plays all day, but then he gets hungry, and they're still not home. Where is everyone? Did they leave him for being a crybaby? Is this a punishment from God for not wanting to go to church? He prays and prays runs to the window, but nobody comes, and he runs to his closet and cries. Nick wakes up from a few nights of heavy drinking after leaving the sober house. His face is a bloody pulp and he's lost a tooth. Blood everywhere. Welcome to hell. He crawls out in search of more liquor, 
the only way he's getting through today. At least he hasn't killed his landlord. He finds a brand new bottle of Absolute in the freezer when the landlord comes home, concerned about Nick's behavior and his bloodied, fucked up face. Nick panics and, realizing the damage he's done to the place, tells him to just keep the deposit, keep the month's rent, and he'll go. He can't hold it together. He's crying as he throws his clothes into a bag, but he takes the vodka. Nick wakes up in his bed, and Mother is there. He can't stop crying, screaming. She's just a mass of things covered in the shiny bodies of flies. She reaches for him with crab fingers, and he hates crabs more than anything. But she offers him purple medicine, and tells him in a silly little cartoon voice from the dead birds in her neck to drink. He begins to see images behind his eyes, a million stories of people's lives living and bleeding and dying, and when he opens his eyes again, her face changes into so many different faces, the faces of the narrators of Mother Horse Eyes. And these faces, Mother's face, show pity, because she knows she is going to have to punish him. Nick wanders down the street with his suitcase and vodka and his busted-ass face. It's hot and he doesn't know where he is or where to go. He finds a storm drain by the freeway and sits down to have his drink. His novelist aspirations seem totally absurd now. Dying in a ditch, he feels he's right where he belongs. Mother has put a nail in his brain. He's so sick he can barely get out of bed. She puts down some big rocks, and he thinks about moving them. When he does, the shadows of the world of possibility move around them, while he does nothing. Mother comes to give him more medicine, and he says he's hungry. She tells him to turn the stones to bread. It works. It's delicious. But then he gets the idea. If he can command the stone into bread, he can bring back his parents. He wakes up in a motel, where he's been tapering off for a few days. He's down to his last two hundred dollars and jittery with fear, but he can't go back to the sober house, and he can't go back to his parents. He calls Sean. Nick doesn't even think he'll come, but Sean shows up as soon as he gets off work and offers to help him get back into the sober house, but Nick insists he needs to go to the warehouse. He explains the whole story, and Sean at first refuses. He doesn't want to send Nick down there with the devil, knowing he'll never be able to come back, but Nick can't live not knowing. He thinks for some reason that whatever is down there, he has the power to destroy it. A car pulls into the driveway, and Nick runs out to greet it, but it's not his father's car. His mother and father come out, but they're not quite right. He cries and hugs his mother's legs, and she says that she was at the store for a few days. When he questions her, looks at her closely, brings up the monster in the house, she falls apart into a sack of wet meat and cats. Mother pulls him back inside and tells him his magic will never be strong enough to make just anyone he wants. She throws him into a cage and berates him for his bad magic. There were children in cages in the living room, passive and sleeping. She takes him to the basement, and inside, it is alive. Nick's springtime optimism has given way to the malaise of summer, amid protests and conspiracy theories, and the coming election, murders, hundred-degree heat. There is nothing in his future. He has to kill his past. Nick avoids mother as much as he can, practicing his magic, he thinks the real reason he couldn't bring his parents back is that they're on the outside, and he's on the inside. But even if he can't reach them, he can make himself do things. Nick is going to the warehouse. He knows he shouldn't. 
He can't. But he's going to. At night, Nick practices and prays. He's been reading the Bible, and he knows about Jesus' blood magic. Soon he will call his own little Christ unto these yellow sands. Nick takes the bus down to where the warehouse is, and the whole place is sunny and empty. The building doesn't even look so bad from the outside. He makes his way inside. At the back of the room is a doorway with torn hinges. He heads down the stairs, a maze full of dust or maybe ash. But at the end of the tunnel, something emerges from the wall in the shape of a hand. He sees it. The wall of bones, bodies, burned out husks of all the wars and the death camps and human atrocities forever. He smells sugar cookies, the ones his mother used to make, the ones he used to make out of stones that summer. Nick walks into the darkness. Nick waits at the window. Then he sees him, coming down the street with his flashlight. He runs to the door and doesn't say goodbye to Mother. He doesn't have to. The door opens. Nick walks into the light. So how are we feeling about about it? Um, like we finished it, is how I feel. <laughs> yeah, wow, God, it's over, huh? Oh my gosh, yeah, I was okay. After we finished up, like, recording from the last bit, I went off to, like, read the rest of it, like, shotgun style. <laughs> like immediately. And I was, and I was worried that, like, reading it that soon right after, I'd not have clear enough, like, recall for this bit, but I do. It feels like if I had revisited it, I'd be like, oh, I, just, I was just here, I just read this. Never mind. This whole segment has a really great pace to it like it just mm-hmm. feels like you, like I I didn't even want to write notes for a lot of it because I was just like in the moment yeah like caught up in it there's a lot of chaff to mother horse eyes. yeah but but this is some of the stuff that is like I think genuinely good mm-hmm I feel like the stuff that is like excessive would have felt like less excessive but then the ending would have felt less like crisp as it does yeah i think you and i both understand the ending but it seems to be Mm -hmm. something that's in contention in the readership oh really did you read the stuff that happens like after the tunnel bit oh like after 100 maybe yes there's there's like the final narrative and that's uh-huh. the end of, like, the narratives in the wiki. I don't know if the collective oh, yes. version has anything further. Yeah, the collective version has passages of, like, a future trip and stuff that's here and there. And then, like, the ending has him, like, making an author's comment. Huh. Yeah, no, I didn't read that, so that doesn't exist in my version of the story. But <laughs> I don't think it, it doesn't change anything, but, like... Like, it's not any further events? Like, what happens? Oh, fuck, let me, I need to bring it up. I need to bring the thing up. Oh, no, I closed, hey, I closed the tab out. That was really satisfying. <laughs> and now I have to go get it again. It's like, the one after it is sort of like, like, extent, I think, of like the Karen story, sort of, I guess. Huh. It's, it takes place in, like, the future after the mother has, like, absorbed, like, the planet, but there's a lot of, like... Is it, is it kind of like an, an extension of the explanation of, like, the Anne story stuff? Maybe? I should have asked you if you had read that part earlier, but then I, like, I didn't realize it'd be, like, not a part of the whole. Which, I think the numbering system, like, sometimes the numberings repeat, 
each other and stuff. I think that was to make it so it was like an even a hundred at the end. No, it's like spaceshipy, and there's like lots of like stuff happening in it. Yeah, that that's related to the Anne story. Yeah, but that's just sort of what I pieced together because like Anne is like one of these people who has been born off of Earth. It's implied that her grandmother comes from Earth, and that's why she's one of the healthy people because like they're the escapees and that's why she has to be like taught true english rather than the the sort mm-hmm. of like feed language which is what she she kind of slips into like fast informal dialect mm-hmm. but like that's just more sci-fi stuff like that's not... yeah it's just it's a it's more sci-fi stuff and it has like a lot of, like, the New Jerusalem, like, second coming yeah. nonsense, like, shoved <laughs> in there. The one after that is, like, Nick talking about, like, the process of writing this. And there's a line at the very, very end. I'll read, like, the last couple paragraphs. Okay, that's the important part. Though I hope it doesn't need to be said, I feel I should make it clear that I reject anti-Semitism in all its forms. Anti-Semitism is perhaps the ultimate conspiracy theory, and though it may surprise you... But I don't care much for conspiracy theories. The world is far too chaotic and complex for one small set of people to exert much control over it. Anti-Semitism is nonsense. As I understand the AA philosophy, the root of all human suffering is in attempting to control what we cannot control. For the alcoholic, this attempt takes the form of alcohol. We try to control our feelings. For others, it may take another form. Regardless of the means, a person who attempts to control everything will suffer grievously under the delusion of control. Conspiracy theories are just the same delusion turned on its head. Instead of assuming that I can control everything, I assume some shadowy person or set of people can, and I assume that by overthrowing them, everything can be made right. This is delusion. Nobody has much control over the world. There is no secret puppet master. The puppet is pulled by a million different strings, and nobody controls them all. So then, mother, the wicked being which has shattered us through all history, which has guided everything, which is now on the cusp of separating us from the past and plunging us into an unrecognizable future. Is it just delusion? A futile attempt at control? Just the ravings of a sad and misogynist man with mommy issues? And that's, I guess, technically the official ending of Mother Horse Eyes. I I feel like I remember this being in the Ten Bond version, because, like, this sounds very familiar. Mm -hmm. But, like, I, I did not remember... Like... Like, I knew more or less how it ended, but I'd forgotten a lot of the details of it. Hang mm-hmm. on, my fucking neighbor is back. He's fucking roaring oh around his stupid-ass motorcycle. I hate this fucking guy so much. Blow him up. I understand why they wouldn't include that on the wiki as one of the, yeah. uh, like, official An canon entry. narratives. Because it does suck. Like, it does make the ending so anticlimactic and, and, and shit after it ends on this, like, perfect yeah. note in 100. Okay, like, so I read through it like that, and, like, it ends in this, like, really intense, like, I have some feelings about it, too, that are, like, less positive, but, like, <laughs> it ends in, like, this, like, rescue yourself, like, perfect loop of the story, and then we get all this nonsense in between, so, like, whatever slides right off the brain, and then, like, <laughs> but, like, the very last line where he's, like, that, like... It's so eye-rolling. It's like, yeah, yeah, dude, we know what you are. It is, yeah. (laughs) There's something, like, to that, though, landing, like, 
really flat. Like, something like, I don't know. It, it feels like last-minute awkward self-defense because he's realized how, like, trashy it is to yeah. have so much, like, anti-Semitism and all these conspiracies. Like, he, he yeah. brings up in that one narrative about, like, feeling like the world is sort of spiraling out of control and things are getting worse and feeling like, huh, you know, I, I had all these optimistic feelings back in the spring about, like, where my life was going and where the world was going, and now it feels like everything is going to shit. And, like, I feel like maybe that is, is a reflection of, like, the real-life author being like, huh, maybe I shouldn't have written so much about Nazis. Oh, <laughs> uh, he, he, he writes something, like, you you went down to the bottom to read, like, essential parts. He has, like, a really upsetting, like, paragraph higher up. Awesome. About that. Let me <laughs> grab that for you right now. I mean, it's the hussy defense, essentially, right? Yeah. This is the same exact shit that Hussey would do, like, not in, like, the comic itself, but, like, on Form Spring yeah. and in, like, the collected books and stuff. Jenny, you're gonna be so fucking mad. <laughs> like, I remember this. Hussey would do the same thing of, of yeah. essentially, like, you know, realizing that he had made a mistake and he shouldn't have done that, but doubling down on it. Yeah, it's the doubling down syndrome. It's like... I mean, like, behavior-wise, like, of people who, like, refuse to be like, oh, I did something wrong, and, like... This, like, at least he's being honest, because this is how yeah. basically everybody who, who writes about Nazis... Yeah, they're horny. ...secretly stuff. feels. Yeah. Like, okay, the, the, the paragraph is, I have to admit, with no small amount of shame, that I've always been perversely titillated by the Nazis' depravities. That's why I wrote the Treblinka segment in the rather lurid style that I did, when I look at the old pictures of the Nazis in their nicely pressed uniforms, I can feel the austere pride with which they wore them. I can feel the almost sexual withholding of human compassion that accompanied their crimes against their fellow human beings. Hey, I think <laughs> people should, like, jerk off before they sit down to write. You should get out of some <laughs> ahead of time. Like, I don't think this is Nick saying, like, no, I know that he's horny like... for the Nazis, but, like, like... Not about Nazi stuff, but, like, you and I also can't deny that we're fascinated by human depravity. That's why we do this show. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so this is still kind of the trash bag defense. Like, the like the hussy trash bag intellectualizing the inner nastiness that motivates why you do the thing that you know you shouldn't have done. Yeah. I guess it's like, he said earlier, I said earlier, whatever episode that was, that, like, as long as you're explaining yourself, you don't need to apologize for anything you're doing in your work. It's another lampshading tool, just like the thing about being like, is this just a coping mechanism for a sad little misogynist? It's like, yeah, we know it, it is. is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like, but you saying that doesn't mean that you didn't do something misogynist, idiot. <laughs> yeah, it's scot free. It's like that, um, it's like the House of Leaves thing, like, yeah. <laughs> is this fire? A sexist, different author? Like, yeah. Your name's on the cover, June. It's not that deep. Oh, speaking of House of Leaves shit, I hated the, the editor interruption. I like the way you did it in the plot <laughs> synapses. That was cool. I hope that I captured, like, what yeah. that energy is supposed to feel like as a reader and not the way that it feels like to me. As so, like, Okay, because, like, we both like metafiction mm -hmm. like we are both interested in 
metafiction, but, like, it just feels, like, lazy. Yeah, it's silly. It feels silly is what it is. Like, you were you're so disrespectful at that point. Yeah, it's, it's like this person thinks that they're on some kind of, like, next-level metafiction kind of maneuvers to, to have this, like, editor insert, like, taking us and, like, having us step back and be like, Nick the narrator is actually a character in the story that he is telling, and, like, we're getting an interruption from outside forces that acknowledges that the story is being written by someone who isn't, in the story and it's like yeah, that it's like, is like level two metafiction that's baby shit like maybe that's blowing the minds of people on reddit but like <laughs> it's just like i don't know it feels cringe like it's to, <laughs> like particularly to have this editor character it's silly there, there's sort of like this dual action going on with it where it's like because what the editor is saying is like hey you should make this story more like a traditional novel and so like on the one hand what it could be is that it's like a self-deprecating move it felt like, of it. like i'm i'm actually a bad writer Ooh. or on the other hand it could be like look at this person being like foolish and parochial and telling me how to tell <laughs> my story which is so much more literary than the average novel and 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 because it's too much like real life or or like a combination of both i think it's combo i think that the reality is combo of it <laughs> 90 came out of my birthday also. Oh, how exciting. Happy birthday to you. A gift for you. <laughs> we get to this point and it, like the world building stops being like center fold and it becomes more about him, Nick character doing like real life stuff. And I wish it continued doing that. I think going back and doing like, I like the way it ends in the tunnel. Okay. So like, but that is separate. Mm-hmm. That is like a separate feeling to this that I kind of wanted and was kind of expecting it to become more personal. And I think the fact that he like jerks back from being like a really vulnerable story about like stuff is like why the the narrative three ending. I was like, yeah, that feels like it tracks because like. <laughs> It feels like he flinched back, and then he, like, brought in, like, the, the fantasy genre of stuff again. And it's like, oh, yeah. well, you, you weren't ready to commit to this bit, I guess. Yeah, because, like, the ending in 100, like, the, the, the official wiki ending, or, or, like, everything from the Sean revelation on, is that, like, this person has been constructing outer narratives around this, like childhood trauma event basically and then learns that like these stories these narratives have some kind of basis in truth and has to go confront that and cannot move on with his life without going and confronting that and then we have the intersection of this like normal real life like we had like the revelation that he sees oh my god, there was something here. I didn't make it up. Like, something happened. And, like, it's another thing where it feels like this is supposed to be some kind of sexual assault narrative. Yeah. And, like, some kind of, like, childhood repressed memory narrative. Yeah. That, like, is just being sort of danced around and, and, like you said, flinched away from. Because then, you know, it, it retreats back into, I guess, the, like, New Jerusalem stuff 
and mm-hmm. the and the high sci-fi and self-aware author's note at the end trying to be like a little impish trickster <laughs> i don't care shut up tell the story i feel like yeah like the him adult him like coming to like the rescue of child him was like really nice like a note like a like a rescuing yourself but like the text as a whole feels like a defeat like a defeatist like because he's not just coming to rescue himself like he talks about his his messiah complex through sort of the back half of the thing and Mm -hmm. you know child nick talks about how he is delivering his own little christ into this like halted reality he is essentially going to come and crucify himself to absolve his childhood fears and sins i think therapy specifically like deprogramming religious based therapy maybe (laughs) this is a story about being a born again christian in a way and like you could be like oh this is just leaning on stuff in the title but like then like like tripling down or whatever because i don't want to keep saying doubling down but like like the space stuff and like everything else about it it's just like oh you're really you're really leaning on this like (laughs) <laughs> Nick's, like, intense atheism was the thing to defeat and not, like, a reaction to suffering he's had. It was like, well, your life sucks and you're, like, a desperate alcoholic because you're an atheist <laughs> or whatever. Nick is someone who is anguishing over wanting God to exist. Mm-hmm whether or not there is like a like a legitimate return to religiosity for the character at the end or it's just like i don't i don't know it's like he wanted something to believe in so he made something but like that framework was so mysteries of christ based (laughs) yeah we talked a little bit last episode about the way that atheists talk about religion this is also how Christians tend to talk about atheists, which is that atheism is itself its own religion. Mm-hmm. Which, like, generally speaking, it is a framework for belief, but it is not a religion Yeah, in the way that, like, a religious belief is. Where, like, this story frames the mother as essentially, like, the material world, the mother is meat, the mother is capitalist reality, and that thing is the the escape, that thing is the delusion, and the solution is this religious belief. I don't know. Like, there's, the, I think there's ways to interpret it. I don't know. Yeah. Like, there are tons of, like, belief systems that engage with that kind of, like, materialism equals evil equals, you know? It feels like there's, like, a misunderstanding of what that entails. Like, it, it, it feels like an apostist's excuse to be Christian again a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just feels like, like the addiction isn't necessarily alcoholism. The addiction is Christianity. <laughs> but it's not... I don't know. It doesn't, it, doesn't, like, it doesn't feel like intentional on the part of the author is a thing. It feels like that's what's happening in this text. But, like... 
it's not maybe not what the author guy was you know yeah thinking about or it may be attempting to like be like a further pushing away of christianity by like centering himself as the messiah that has to like rescue himself yeah, that's, that's kind of cool that's- because the story is fucking huge and there's yeah. so much going into it it makes it so ambiguous which is a great thing it's great to yeah. talk about but it's also like the whole series together is around 80,000 words it's the length of a short novel by far the longest thing we've read on the show and each like roughly 15,000 words we covered in each episode is full even the stuff that's like fluff or horseshit has something in it that you have to consider and you have to like talk about if you want to discuss it thoroughly there's so much evidence to try and think about and this this whole thing has been like a fucking marathon yeah yeah I was thinking about what to say during the opening of the thing, and it does feel like we've, like, accomplished a a huge, like, (laughs) sports thing. Reading it in depth, like, reading it Mm -hmm. to discuss it, it's like, Jesus, there's so much. It is so dense. It kind of, it's, like, dense, but not heavy, you know? (laughs) That's That's not what I mean. Like, it's, it doesn't, like, sometimes when you read something, you're like, well, I've read that, and, like, I might be done with reading for a little while. But it didn't feel like that. Yeah, like, it doesn't feel, it doesn't make you feel like you're allergic to the story when you're reading it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a lot. Like, that's, I still haven't, I still haven't finished fucking American Psycho. Because, exactly. like, I'm allergic <laughs> to this book. I have a hundred fucking pages left. I've had a hundred pages to go for multiple months. I cannot pick up this book. I've become allergic to it. And, like... It reminds me a little bit of, like, Three Body Problems series in that, is that it's, mm. like, immensely dense and, like, very, like, interlock complex, like, yeah. but doesn't have that weight to it of something like... Like, it's dense but readable. Yeah. I want to say breezy, but it's not... Neither <laughs> of these things are breezy, but, like, yeah, a comparative sentiment. I, I, I find Southern Reach has a similar kind of energy for me. I also, like, I I was looking back through through some stuff, like, I I was trying to find out when was the first time that I engaged with Mother Horse Eyes. It was in Mm -hmm. July of 2021. And I realized, oh my god, like, I remembered. Mother Horse Eyes is the reason why I finally went and I read the Southern Reach books. That's so cool. So, like, in a way... Mother Horse Eyes is the thing that got me to, like, start reading again after, like, not reading anything for, like, a couple of years. Yeah, it, like, it's a series that makes you want to go make art, I think. Which yeah. Which is, like, not a lot of things that are out there that, like, immediately want you to make, like, go do something like that. And that's, like, an accomplishment. Even if it's out of, like, frustration <laughs> with the core work. Because it's, like, because this is a frustrating work. Yeah. It is a thing that you read it and you're, like what the fuck are you talking about? Not even in, like, a confusion way, just, like, an exasperation way. Like, what the fuck are you on about, man? But, and it's also, like, hey, it's, it's one of those things where it's, like, it's not a perfect work, and it's, but it's also, like, an expansive work, so you're, like, oh, Mm. I can do something like this, too, or, oh, I can go experience things like this. Like, how I'm stuck. (laughs) Like, I bagged on it being, like, not very elegant at being metafiction but like this is one of the the things that like inspired me to lean in more heavily on the metafiction 
aspects of Seer when I was working on yeah. it. Yeah. That's cool. You know, gave me some ideas about, like, overlapping temporality stuff. Like the like the handcuff trick. Mm-hmm. That was something that, like, I, I think was probably because I'd been reading, you know, Mother Horse Eye, Southern Reach. Yeah, it's like that something can be a source of inspiration is, like, neat. Nice. <laughs> Everyone should go to read your fanfiction, Jenna. <laughs> no. He won't let me put in the notes. I won't let you do it. <laughs> he won't. <laughs> Reaching back a bit to the text and, like, stuff we were saying, <laughs> I noticed in this one a lot, like, throughout, he's, like, really self-deprecating, but this one feels really, like, tied to that, like, yeah, like, he's like, I'm not crazy because I'm not doing this, like, caricature behavior, and it's, like, that he's been taught this self-hate, and he only expresses through self-hate, but it's also directed at others now. Yeah. It's, like, it's, like, the whole, like, oh, I want to go, like, go be with artists, and, like, they'll understand my pain and suffering and stuff, when it's, like... No, most artists, like, suck to be around. It sucks so like, bad. most artists are just, like, dumb rich kids. It's the paradox of, like, wanting to be in an art space, because that sucks so fucking bad. It's, like, <laughs> you need to, on some level, to be, like, enriched and nurtured in these environments, because it also sucks to be, like, outside it, because what's outside it is, like, turnkey houses and, like, beige and, like, <laughs> people who hate you because they think you're some kind of person to hate, like, in a bigoted way, you know? Yeah. And then you're in these spaces that are art spaces, but everyone is, like, immature and, like, naive and, like, rich and stuff and <laughs> also hate you for undisclosed reasons that you could probably uh, pick from a branching access tree but like you know the thing about making art friends you just have to like make friends with yeah. people with similar interests to you you can't just go out into like an art space and be like i'm just gonna make friends like you will not find anybody who is tolerable who's going to be helpful for you you need to find peers yeah if your goal is to make art friends and like you're not, like, framing it as networking because people are just like, I'm going to join this group and be friends with all these cool and popular artists. You're going like, to be engaged in, like, the most, like, upsetting, unexplainable, dramatic behavior. <laughs> yeah, like, art people do fucking, like, nothing but, like, date each other, break up, write call-out posts about each other, and, like, <laughs> make art about their genitals. And then they make art about the call-out post they made about you. That's also porn. <laughs> and that's something you're going to have to live with. So you need to find, like, peers instead. <laughs> Someone right now is kickstarting. Yeah, like, find a- people that you <laughs> get along with and start making art together. Yeah. Mm. That's the thing. You just have friends, I guess, in the story. <laughs> Sha- like, Sean is so nice to him, even though he's, like, this huge cunt to him Sean all the time. Sean is so nice to him. <laughs> Sean is, like, his best. He's, like... Sean is the nicest character in the story. Sean fucking, like, comes to it. He's like, oh my god, like, this person is reaching out to me? I yeah. need to fucking help this guy. <laughs> he, like, he drops everything. He, like, he smooths over, like, the house he probably left. And, like, you know, he, like, he's like, yeah, you yeah. can come back. He does, he does all this stuff. And Sean's like, what the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> like, <laughs> misery and dead. He, he can't score coke for me or whatever he says to him. Like, he's, like, astonished that Sean is there. And yeah. so, like, 
Because he's a good person. It's that sort of, like, wounded posture, assuming that, like, because you don't like yourself, that means that everybody hates you. And it's, like, it's a tempting thing to think if you have, like, a certain kind of brain, but it's Mm -hmm. also something that, like, makes you insufferable to be around. People who, who want to be around you don't understand why you're acting like this. And yeah. they think that you're being an asshole. If they are also, like, someone who has, like, you know, stuff going on, they're probably going to feel like you're rejecting them. But most of yeah. the time, you're just going to be confused. <laughs> <laughs> like, you just have to bite the bullet and be like, okay, I guess this person cares about me and is my friend. Obviously, this isn't like us giving notes to Nick, the fictional character who is supposed to be awful, but... It's a behavior that people in real life do that sucks. I think for some people, it can be a relief to see a guy in a story who's going through it and, like, acting and feeling the way that you feel and expressing yourself through that. But, like, it's usually good to be reminded that this is behavior that will fuck up your life, you know? It's, like, going to hurt a bunch and stuff. You're going to be, like, trembling and scared, (laughs) but it's, like, good for you. Like, Nick is also, like, really terrible to, like, his other housemate who's like hey are you okay are you like do you need help it's it's fine he's like take <laughs> oh, the, my the, the, re- the landlord yeah yeah he's like which like like i guess he's the landlord but he seemed really like a house buddy situation who just like had the house in his name i think it was like he was renting out a room from this guy i guess that makes you a landlord but like landlord also yeah like, he's cost- subletting yeah yeah like, there's landlord class and landlord behavior, I guess, is the thing. <laughs> He's basically saying, like, it's fine, while he, Nick is like, take my rent, it's too embarrassing. He, like, runs into the street, like, bag <laughs> flapping in the air. <laughs> and it's like, well, you don't need to do that. <laughs> the guy sounded, like, chill. He sounded more concerned that you did this thing to yourself and to the building. I believe that author Nick is aware of these things and is aware that, like, Nick is being a fucking crazy person. Yeah. But, like... It's definitely intended in the story, but, like, (laughs) the conclusion that comes from it feels strange. Because I like 100, and I I think Mm -hmm. it ends up in, like, an interesting place, a lot of the story is held back by the fact that we never see... Nick reach any kind of genuine self-awareness that isn't itself, like, part of the act, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because, like, being self-aware is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Like, real life and story-wise. There's a sort of cultivated, like, image of self-awareness, like, especially online and in sort of, like, um post-therapy society yeah. where, like, you are supposed to talk about yourself in a Get certain in way. Therapy. Like, this, the, the, this whole story is about repeating therapized language without doing the actual thing that you're supposed to go to therapy for. Like, yeah, there is like, no knowledge gained, ultimately. It just justifies, like, getting to the next point of the story, really, and not, like, an examination and exploration of these, like, topics or, like, the transformation of behavior. Yeah. The ultimate goal of doing a counseling is to stop doing behaviors that hurt you. 
That is the ultimate goal of any kind of good counseling. <laughs> like, behaviors are, like, pre-established patterns, and they're, like, moldable. Like, your behaviors aren't you, but you have to, like, take responsibility for your behaviors is basically it, you know? Yeah. Where, like, I, I think in a lot of post-therapy discourse, the idea is that, like, the posture of self-awareness, the sort of aesthetic of self-awareness is the thing that's more important. The ability to mm -hmm. talk about yourself and talk about the world in certain ways comes before the change of behavior, which is backwards. Yeah. And that's that, That's the thing that, like, the ending of Mother Horse Eyes ends up kind of encapsulating. Yeah. But the idea is that, like, he's rescuing his child self and he's walking into the tunnel and it's oh like, my okay, God. are you going to stop drinking, though? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you, you've, you've done the rebirthing, but you rebirth into an alcoholic that you already were. <laughs> Multiply by one. A thing that has happened. Going and crucifying yourself. <laughs> for the sake of your wounded child identity is not actually going to help you in the long run. <laughs> like, Fuck you're just kids. going to write like... a bunch of Nazi fanfiction, I think. <laughs> like, I know what you mean when you're saying that, but, like, the mental image of his, go like, of his like, child self is like, yes, I'm going to be saved, and he's, like, going to go do a mini crucifixion with the his <laughs> child self in the meatscape. It's really hitting. <laughs> Because baby Nick, the power that he's cultivating is, like, this power of imagination. It's it's getting back into that, like, never-ending story thing again. Where he has to essentially learn to use his powers for good. He can't just create anyone with these powers. He, he, he can't create realistic simulacra of the people in his life because he doesn't feel like he's a good enough writer to actually do that and that's, oh, that's the reason cool. why he can't go home for all of the of the agony that mm -hmm. we spend over his feelings towards his parents we get so little of them in the actual story we get so much more of this like imagined like evil mother that lives in his mind and berates him for being a crybaby and like being a bad writer a representative like fathers this is just like a like a mind demon that he has developed that mm -hmm. that, that is teaching him that is doing psychic warfare on him to turn him into a better <laughs> writer or something and he has to rescue the the baby version of himself that can learn how to write good I don't know. He has, like, a native it's, child <laughs> imagination. He has to go, like, harvest baby parts. <laughs> he's, he's, he's lost, like, the ability to imagine abstractions. So he has to go, like, get that back. But it's trapped in the, the vortex of the meat. Or, like, lost the ability to imagine, like hopefulness and like to imagine it's essentially we are seeing like a kind of time travel narrative here mm -hmm. like when he goes and he he saves the version of like that that's the thing that i was going to bring up earlier like, like there, there's sort of contested opinions about what happens to nick the character here 
I've heard some up. people say like, oh, he goes and he gets destroyed by the mother. What are you fucking talking about? That's <laughs> obviously not no, what happens. Yeah, there's no, there's no, <laughs> he lives because we get an amendment at the end. But like, what, what, what he is doing is he is basically going into his own past, into his own memories, into, because this version of himself is still trapped in that long summer with yeah. the mother and and is still alone living on nothing but bread and sugar cookies made out of rocks which is you know another obvious like biblical yeah. reference the the manna huh. from stones there's this child trapped in amber thinking this has happened to me because i'm such a crybaby interspersed with scenes of like real-life adult Nick, like, crying and freaking the fuck out about things and not knowing how to talk to his parents and, like, feeling abandoned, basically having to come back, like, walk into hell in order to sacrifice himself for this child self. Like, that is that is the text of what is happening. Yeah. Right before he, like, when he was, like, still in a ditch and stuff, I was worried <laughs> that this was going to be, like, oh, we're getting into, like, the big protagonist sort of thing that stories like this get into like i'm gonna go save the day against the paranormal thing even like the more (laughs) structurally sound story would be for that not to happen and like he does sort of do that but it doesn't get to like that bad of a thing yeah it's not it's not a total like it's not cosmic level it's, it's very much a personal story, except for the fact that it is tied within his own personal mythology to the yeah, stupid yeah, New yeah. Jerusalem stuff, which is why that ending, so bad. that, like, the, second ending is so stupid. It's stupid. Like, no, but, like, getting to, like, like how people are like, oh, mother, the mother, like, blew him up or whatever. It's like, because <laughs> people were expecting a big boss battle, and the fact that there yeah. wasn't one is that people assume he, like, was disintegrated or something. But, like, hey... Not everything has to end in, like, a, a battle royale against the monster IP he made. She's not real. She doesn't exist. That's yeah. the point. The point is that she's not real and that he made her up in order... She's a literary object. <laughs> yeah, the mother is a metaphor. The mother is, like, a yeah. creature that he made up in his mind for, like, a stand-in for the thing that happened to him, whatever that thing may be. And we don't get what happens to him because he just like like doesn't go there. He's like, well, bye. Yeah, because the story the story is not about what literally happened to him. The story is about him like validating and accepting the idea that like something bad happened and I am fucked up now. Especially okay, in ninety two and ninety three, it does feel like we're going to like get there, like. Like, he approaches it, and in the approach, the entry is sort of, like, loosely word-associated. It's not, like, a complete, I wouldn't call it a complete word salad, but it's, like, this, like, loose word association that we got kind of at the very start, but this is, like, more. Yeah, like, his his process of describing his, like, alcoholic dream, basically. Yeah, and that's when it folds back on, like, the sci-fi fantasy, where, like, then he, like, really describes the mother in, like, detail, and it's, like, that gap there is like we almost got to something that was like that literally happened to him and then it was like well now we're here again and like the mother and like this cyclical thing is like 
what represents the thing that happened to him. Because it's it's not uncommon in fiction to yeah. use, like, a kind of cosmic horror to describe something in real life that is too horrible to be described. That is essentially the, the maneuver that Mother Horse Eyes rests on when it comes to Nick's narrative especially. Yeah, like, I like that on one level. Like, I do wish, I do think it would be a better story if it had stopped that, but, like, what it is is solid in that, you know? On the other hand, there is also the arthropod narrative, which I fucking love. I love the arthropod yeah, narrative. Fun. I feel like people don't like it because it literalizes and, like, gives an explanation for everything, like, like why this happens on a textual level, mm-hmm. is that there are hungry things on the other side that want to eat humans. And that's it. That's the explanation. And and it's so, like, I think that works because yeah. it comes around again to this, like, this sticks the sort of, like, banality of evil thing much better than any of the Nazi stuff. In the Nazi narratives, referring to Jews as livestock repeatedly mm-hmm. and, like, the emphasis on meat space, it is a kind of indictment of capitalism and fascism through this the idea of the arthropod narrative is fundamentally that like this bad thing is happening on our side like there is this colonization that is happening and has been happening for a long time that is is going to subjugate humanity just so that these other people from a society that is being ruined by their own upper class can maybe get some food. And probably not even that, because this is, you know, the stuff that only the upper class, the priest class, um, has access to and grants conditional access to the lower classes. It's not actually doing anything to help the situation on the other side, because they are still experiencing entropy. They are still experiencing the degradation of the environment over on their side. It's like... We have this, like, mirror society with, with the bug people, and I think that's cool. I really like the bug section. I like how it was written. I thought the characters were cute. And, like, I wasn't around for, like, the people, how people felt about this stuff. Like, it wasn't, <laughs> like, ear in the ground, mother horse eyes. But, like, <laughs> so I'm surprised to hear that people thought it was, like, I get why people would have thought it was, like, you know... Because people want, like, the big, like, cosmic, like, you are the protagonist of the universe kind of, like, explanation. It's also the, the frustration, I think, that comes from having any explanation. Mm, that's true. Like, when, when people talk about the, the monster in the dark is scarier than the monster you can see kind of thing, that's true. It doesn't really explain... First off, he gives, like, the mother's, like, social security number by this point, like... <laughs> But, like, giving her explicit motivations or, like, giving giving the mother handlers, essentially, in the form of the priests who manage the other side of the interface. It's like, that explains some stuff, but not everything. So I don't, like, like, I get why people would say that, but, like, she's not a huge bug, though. <laughs> she's kind of like a meat horse. Like, she's also, like, kind of a mystery, and they're, like, exploiting the mystery of her, but, like, I wouldn't say, like, in the text of the story that she has, like, 
loyalty to that side either as much as like she has loyalty to the side either she's yeah. sort of like a, a source that they're also tapping into yeah she is the conduit itself yeah like there is not necessarily a will to the mother like we we also have this conflict around who or what is god and whether or not oh, it yeah. exists and what the motivations of it are and the ultimate answer is also still like pretty ambiguous so like you could draw the conclusion that like there actually is no mother that the mother is itself a projection in order to rationalize why this horrible thing is happening because our brains are not able to process that amount of information like the mother itself the mother is the interface the mother is the thing that allows us to have like a thing to project on to mm-hmm. understand there are these the series of systems the series of tubes the superstructure that connects us to the arthropods he kind of like presents it as like a religious war then huh like because <laughs> he's coming from it like these different like belief systems are all like squeezing from the same source god yeah or like projecting a god onto the same sort of like blank chaotic canvas yeah and in that kind of like doomsday christian sort of way (laughs) instead of like different philosophies are different because they represent like different cultural values and stuff yeah and it's interesting how separate all of this is from nick's narrative like (laughs) like you can interpret like some some capitalist critique and stuff into nick's narrative Uh but his personal narrative has basically nothing to do with the rest of this hoping it just become Nick's narrative. Like, I was hoping all stuff would fall away and be like, okay, well, now I'm Nick. I'm gonna go be doing stuff. Here's the resolution <laughs> for my stuff. And, like, I get, I get why it doesn't. And it's probably a better story that it doesn't. Or, like, a more, like, a story that sticks with you more, I guess. I don't know. You know what I mean? There's so... Yeah. I think the thing is, like, there's so much stuff like this. There's so much stuff that, like, stays in, like, the space of genre when it's doing, like, like, the psychological thing. It's, like, the ending of the original Evangelion series versus, like, End of Ava. Yeah. Because, like, End of Ava takes, like, the fantasy sci-fi elements to their natural conclusion. It's like, hey, here's a bunch of sci-fi. Like, here's all the sci-fi you can fucking glut yourself on. Does it make you happy? <laughs> versus, like, the ending of the series just being, it's like... It's, like, perfect. It's insane. The, the series is narrative 100. That's like, yeah. the, the, like, they're the same thing. They're just like this guy fucking talking back and forth to like the different parts of his own mind and like rationalizing why he deserves to exist in the world. Literally the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> like same, they belong in the same category because they're like the same beats of a thing. It's like a better tie off to like let it rest. Like, I I have conflicted feelings about all of the things we've discussed. I think Mm -hmm. I generally fall on the side of liking more than disliking, but with, like, a caveat. Like, a caveat that I think the people who made all of these things (laughs) are idiots. Like, idiots in the way that, like, artists who make good art are idiots. Like, genius idiocy. sometimes Sometimes people who make really good art are, like stupid and like rancid yeah. and like just like a person you would never want to like know in real life but then they make art you're like wow this changed my life 
Like, I, I watched Ava way too late in my life for it to be life-changing, but it's like, huh, that's a good example of, of a thing that I like. Yeah, well, that too. Like, sometimes you just like <laughs> it, and you're like, well, you don't understand why this is good, but I'll take it. <laughs> Completely unrelated. I think in 86? Question mark? The original sleep experiment, Russian sleep experiment, like, prop is hyperlinked in this one. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah. Like the like the rubber mask? It's like a it's like a nasty like prop. It's just in someone's car. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's like a Halloween uh, fucking garden prop. Yeah. I, I always forget, I always think it's like a crazy mask. Yeah, like someone's like in a haunted house or something doing like a haunt or like a, a prop mask. Yeah. It's like a it's like a gnome, but like big <laughs> that's delightful <laughs> oh look at him like circling back around to the arthropod story mm-hmm. like the language choice really tickles me about the arthropod narrative like that's one of the things that makes me it's like even cute. if i didn't like the direction that it is taking the story i would like it just because i like the way that he mm-hmm. uses language in this in this very like it's it's a very good use of like world building dialect it doesn't go too far it doesn't hold your hand too much i'm really into conlangs i don't think i've mentioned that on the show before this obviously isn't a full conlang but it has elements of like language construction or, or fantasy language ideas i think he uses this handful of invented and translated words in an interesting way he's always had a very purposeful use of language Except for some very small parts in the story, he's really good at that. And especially after coming off of several parts where the voice is kind of samey because it's like mostly characters who are him or similar to him Mm -hmm. for a little while. That's why I thought I was going to start smushing and like decoupling from the sci-fi because the voice was getting like same Tony. (laughs) I think like bringing the arthropod narrative through is, is... partially because of realizing that he'd been in kind of the same voice for a little while and wanting to... Oh, how fun and fresh. (laughs) Yeah. Wanting to have something a little fresh. Like, one of the things I noted, Mara. Really interesting to use... Yeah. Biblical name, essentially. Like, an old Hebrew name for this alien species. Like, Nick the author knows that it wasn't strictly necessary to give names to, to creatures. these creatures. Like, that that they may not have names, especially given their communication style, which appears to be, like, showing colors and, and mm-hmm. signals through the colors of their, of their carapace. Mm-hmm. But, like, knowing that these are, like, these are the chitinous cruciforms that appear in our waters when there's an underwater portal, right? Mm-hmm. Mara is the the name from which we derive Mary mm-hmm. like you know the the the, uh, the Jesus lady mm-hmm. and it's it's a name that means bitter mm-hmm. like and and that she becomes a, a holy woman essentially f- from the the perspective of the arthropods i don't know just an interesting thing there's also like a lot of cross cultures mara association and like he's definitely using it in this Christian way, but, like, <laughs> it's just a fun thing to note, like, across, like, a lot of cultures, there's, like, 
she can be like a goddess of darkness or of like illness or like cold or like a concept of like a thing that comes to you in your sleep or like the way your soul travels from your body when you're like still and stuff like that. It's it's interesting to take this familiar name mm-hmm. and use it in this defamiliarized context and also the color words. I'm so enamored yeah. with, with the color words. The color is so cute. I really like how that attaches to like how we have to like engage in like 4D space, like space that we can't like normally comprehend. I think in that way the bugs wouldn't be able to comprehend how we talk either. And yeah. like we could be using the mother to like communicate with each other, but instead like the upper classes are using it to like as a war machine, as like a meat factory for like the rich and stuff. And it's like yeah. robbing us of our ability to have bug friends. I think that's what the story is <laughs> about. Yeah, like this is a sort of like mutual space potentially. Like something that desires signal, something that runs on electrical impulse, something that could theoretically be communicated with Mm -hmm. if it weren't being run on the other side by people with extremely bad intentions. Oh, it's so cool. And it's, like, such a breath of, like, fresh air in the story at that point. Like, you're not expecting it. And, like, the characters are nice. They're fun. They're cute. You're rooting for them. You want them to be lesbian bugs. (laughs) And the, the, the idea of, like, untranslatability. Like we were saying, like, that's a part of the idea of mother horse eyes of like that there is this natural separation to like human experience that you were just functionally not able to communicate mm-hmm. with another person in every single way they they have color words that like almost every word except you know one specific one that gets repeated that never has a color word associated with it like which is red the way yeah. that they describe, like, the red of human blood, this foreign substance, essentially, that, you know, the priests cover themselves with and represents the the juice of the, the humans. Like, anything that is associated with the humans, pink, brown, whatever, does mm-hmm. not get one of these untranslatable colors. These are, like, unique experiences. And I tried looking up a few of them to see, like, okay... Is he doing, like, language trick, like, using words from actual human languages to pair them up? And it doesn't seem so. Like, like it just seems like these are fully world-built words. Like, there could be all sorts of significance that we would never be able to understand about mm-hmm. all of this. Because, like, we cannot perceive these colors. We cannot communicate in this way. And, like, the idea of colors we don't see in, like, like the invisible world of, like, insects and other small creatures yeah. with this vision. Fucking rules. Like, yeah. yeah. so cool. Huge, huge thumbs up for that. Specific, like, like, I know we're talking about, like, oh, you know, it sucks that Nick leaned so far into like, the sci-fi. Oh my God. This specific thing is, like, it, good sci-fi. So, and, like, I like, like that. Yeah. And, like, we wouldn't have it if he started to lean back away. So it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, I like that this exists the way it does. I was I thought it would be something different, I guess. Yeah. And I like the way that it, it works with the other themes mm-hmm. of Mother Horse Eyes outside of the Nick 
narrative. Because, like, I mean, he also talks about, like, being afraid of crabs. And he makes these crab beasts. He makes these, these beasts with chitinous shells and snippy claws that live in the ocean. He is dealing with his ultimate fear is, like, <laughs> there's a crab on the other side of, of this thing that is going to eat me. What if there was a crab? It's it's a very like juvenile fear. <laughs> There's a... <laughs> okay, I'm I'm like super not afraid of crabs in like any shape or form. Yeah. Like I there's some insecty They're adorable. Body... They're adorable, yeah. There's some like insecty movements I'm afraid of, but crabs like even if they invoke that movement, I'm not afraid of crabs like in a, like a way that's like people are afraid of things. The, do you remember when The Haunting in Connecticut came out? Barely. I never saw that movie. Okay, there's a scene in it where he's, like, the main boy is, like, in the hospital, and he's having, like, a paranormal experience with his mind, and there's just, like, a crab on his chair. It's, like, a big off, fuck <laughs> off blue crab. And he's screaming and stuff. And like, that was Nick. <laughs> yeah, that was Nick. <laughs> the narrative of, you know, baby Nick mm-hmm. is very relatable yeah if you were like a kid who like just like had emotional problems Mm -hmm. because like talking about the anxiety of like my parents don't like me because i'm not normal is (laughs) (laughs) that's an anxiety that i can remember having like Mm -hmm. just like serious emotional problems from an early age Mm -hmm. that like nobody was addressing and everyone was like can you stop acting like this and then did nothing about it well like like of them though like what were you gonna do walk yourself into child therapy <laughs> when i was like 12 like one of the things that that reading the nick stuff and and also some of the the adult nick stuff reminded me of was that like when i was 12 i had this weird meltdown where like i i don't remember what was happening with me at the time cuz like i was 12 and i'm yeah. 26 now yeah um i started sitting by myself at lunch and i like i was not eating i was just like sitting alone and i like convinced myself or like told myself that i was going to tell other people that i was seeing a man in the corner of the room like yelling at me like a disembodied man's head like saying mean things to me and i drove myself into this hysterical meltdown so that someone would find me and take me to the school counselor and they talked to my mom and she took me to a counselor thinking like oh my god like my kid is seeing ghosts like like <laughs> and and i was too embarrassed to say like this is about my anguishes, and I made the other stuff up. And to this day, when I try to tell my mom, like, no, I made that up, she insists that I couldn't have been making it up. Well, like, okay, like, like, <laughs> like, you needed help, and you, like, you lacked the, like, language and avenue to go get help otherwise, you know? Yeah. Like, s- similar thing to, to what Nick is, was going through as, like, a child. Like, experienced, like, a thing that the... the baby mind was not able to process and like just started like acting out about it and didn't know how to say like no this is a story that I am telling myself and that I am telling you now because I because I don't know how to talk about like the actual feeling that I'm having in my body fun fact I also did ghosts when I was younger like (laughs) 
Like, that you saw ghosts or that you told people that you saw ghosts? Yeah. Like, be like, hey, I'm gonna, like... Yeah, like, hey, take me to the doctor. I'm seeing ghosts. Yeah, just... Like, so maybe it's, like, a... It's also sort of, like, a culture, like, thing, you know? Like, you know that's a yeah. thing that existed. So you reached for that. Look, we were, we were looking at that article recently about the TikTok Tourette's phenomenon. Yeah, like, kids just do stuff. <laughs> like, young people who, who have, like, actual, like, mental distress kind of, like, give themselves this, like, psychosomatic illness and, like, yeah. come up with things to, like, make themselves sick so that they can get some kind of help for the thing that they're actually dealing with. And, like, the problem is, is, like, unless you're, like, ill enough to be disruptive, like, so you don't, you just don't get help is the thing. Yeah. And, like, you're too young to understand that's what's happening, so you have to, like, do something about it. As a child, or even as a teen, you don't think through the process of, like, okay, I'm too embarrassed, or, like, I'm too scared to talk about what I'm feeling, so I am going to make something up to get attention. You just think, I need attention, or I'm going to die. And then you do something for that attention. Yeah, it's like... Uh, you you find ways to help yourself, you know? Yeah. It's also, like, there's a kind of child therapy that, like, gets, like, applied to, like, anyone who's, like, not, like, an older teen. And it's, like, you got in there really young, that's not gonna hit. I'm not, like, a child <laughs> therapist or anything. But, like, <laughs> I was not into child therapy when I was in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't think this is doing anything for me. I, uh, like, <laughs> like, obviously, like, you can, like, extrapolate what it's doing for you. Like, when you're older, you're like, oh, I see this is why they wanted me to do this, but, like, I wasn't yeah. doing it, so it, it just wasn't really helping. <laughs> I think therapy in general, counseling in general, is good. I have never had, like, a helpful experience with it, necessarily. <laughs> Like, I've never had a bad experience, but I've never had, like, no, a I've known great with, like, experience where it's, like, been helpful. Yeah, like, I know people's, like, experiences that left them worse off in, like, yeah. <laughs> a, like a, a material, physical way, but, like, yeah. an obviously mental way, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, like, my experience was just sort of, like, it's just like, oh, you can't help me. <laughs> yeah, you are not. Which, like, that in itself is harmful, because that, like, reinforces, like, wow, huh, I'm really, I'm really trapped here, aren't I? Well, okay. Yeah. Or, like, some things just, like, aren't going to be resolved through therapy because they are, like, if it's a thing that you just have to, like, decide to stop doing. Not to. The way a lot of, like, historically my stuff has been for me. Uh, it's like, well, going to a doctor is not actually going to help me with that. I just need to not do that thing anymore. That's like, uh, it's environmental and like interactive too. And it's like, unless yeah. the therapist is going to like walk up to whatever parent is causing the distress, <laughs> like it's just, like coping mechanism is a good thing to teach, but it's like, you can't really do that if you're only meeting up once a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. It has to be intensive and stuff, and, like, that's not really viable in today's, like, uh, mental health landscape. Yeah. We did away with, like, long-term hospital care that's, like, really, like, resonating and stuff with people. Not that it was ever all that good to start with. There's, like, obviously (laughs) a lot of historical problems with it. But, you know, there's, like, 
a level of art and care to it that has not been replaced with anything. I, I, I think I have a generally, like, wholly negative view of, like, the hospital system as far as, like, mental health care yeah. goes. Like, I think good that it's gone, bad that there's nothing good in response to it being gone. Yeah, that's about it. And one of my other notes about Baby Nick stuff um, is that this is like if Skinamarink was good. Oh my god! I <laughs> I wrote that too. Not, not the full <laughs> sentiment, but like I, I definitely made this skin, the, the note for it. The... <laughs> like, oh haha, that's like Skinamarink. Yeah. Like, you guys, you guys really hyped up Skinamarink. I it was like it was okay. <laughs> Listen, okay, okay, okay. I'm glad that exists. Skinamarink is like one of those movies that you have to hype up to normies so that they understand that like <laughs> this is an art movie and you have to explain like no 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 you got you don't get it this is good. But Fucking like with your gritty. actual friends who like watch art movies, you can be like no that was kind of shit. Yeah, you're making us bleed and die for it, and it's really upsetting. <laughs> I'm dying on the cross defending <laughs> Skinnerink to my sixty year old mother. When I'm feeling like uh, about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like my god. Uh, like. I just felt like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Like, seriously. <laughs> like, <sighs> like, I wish I hadn't seen it in theaters because, like, the audio yeah, I don't know. is people, so fucking grating. People were like, oh, you have to see it all big and immersive, but, like, why? I have. It I have belongs on the small screen. It yeah. belongs on your computer screen. Yeah, it's like. The only reason to go see it in theaters is to, I guess, give money to the guy who made it through that's his, fine. like, world. Well, I pirated it, whatever. Oh. <laughs> He has yeah, exactly. help for money. What the fuck? He made a movie. <laughs> <laughs> like a movie with a budget of like five dollars yeah, to be fair. That's true. But like people have like a weird like tier understanding of people who in- like like if someone has made something, they have <laughs> more resources than you who did not make something. Like if you pirate from them and like maybe go and support their next project or go buy some merch, that's going to like result in more things than going to like a physical location where the wealth has already been distributed and you're supporting like I don't know like vehicle stuff and like sales stuff of food and you know what I mean like the, the flow of money is I can see that argument but like when it comes to like indie art like because Skinamarink is an indie project mm. that some fucking how managed to get like a wider release. I mean, I'd, I'd probably buy the D- like if if a DVD comes out, I'll probably get a DVD of it. Like nobody knows why this thing is in theaters because it was it's it's made by someone who does not appear to have a lot of like money or studio connections, as evidenced by the way that Skinamarink looks is edited. <laughs> I think editing is a big indicator yeah. of wealth. The lack thereof. Maybe I will <laughs> if it's a, if they have digital copies, I'll buy a digital copy and burn it. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who's like, you have to go out and support the artist financially, like with like with your cash dollars. I think it's fine to pirate everything. <laughs> like if you pirate, you should promote the thing. Yeah, if yeah. It ends up being good. If you want to, like support 
the artists around you. That's a thing that you should mm-hmm. make an effort to go do, in my opinion. Like, you don't have to give them financial money, but you should, like, point them in the direction. Or, like, yeah. point, yeah, point yeah. people with money in their direction. I you agree. Can. Yeah. You need to get your rich friends into indie art. Yeah. That's, what, that's the thing, too. It's, like, who is, like, supporting these things, you know? Everyone can't be, like, a little micro baron supporting every like <laughs> artist that comes up like that's not realistic yeah like we we don't have you know patronages anymore. yeah we gotta bring it back it's the only way we're gonna survive <laughs> i mean like like the problem with the patron system though also is that like you're obligated to make the art that your patron wants you to make like you can't just like do whatever the fuck you that's want that's the reality of every furry artist online <laughs> Also, I, I just wanted to say that the tower poem in 89 really got me. That made me get a little misty. Mother Horse says is like a land of contrasts. Like, you can read something that pisses you off beyond belief right up against something that punches you in the gut. So, Wednesday, any final thoughts you have on Mother Horse Eyes? Anything you want to sort of send the series off on? I would love to go back through again and, like, read it from the Reddit threads like you did and just like spend the time to read through all the citations and like the gathered post finished story collection section like I really did like the hyperlinks I think that enhanced the experience a lot and like you know how much I like a hyperlink journey mm-hmm. and I also want to re- listen through with like the read along narrator person that we have like featured down in the notes yeah, uh, ten bond. I thought I was going to because I had like finished the story, like finished the reading, the, the final part of the story, towards the end. But I had a much better recall of it than I thought I would, so I didn't need to. But I want to do the listen through. Like I felt I wasn't smart enough to present the story in the way it needed to be, but at the same time, it's not that cerebral, so I don't think I need to be like over the rack about it. And I know, like, throughout the whole thing, I've said, like, a lot of snappy and reactionary kind of stuff to the story itself, but one, it's, like, for the bits, for the jokey joke, but, like, in a, like, a candid way, it explores this, like, nature of the internet. Like, there wasn't a furry space you could go to without seeing, like, a wolf in a Nazi uniform with, like, a three-foot cock and, like what do we do with that? Like, what do we do with the beheading videos and, like, every form of human depravity that we just, like, absorb into us from the internet? But, you know, it's, like, a whitewashing of reality. Like, this yearning for pastoralism. People used to go to, like, beheadings in real life for, like, fun and watch people with, like, out homes get operated on, like, publicly and stuff in like operation theaters why is it different because it's like a digital media does it have a different weight but like the whole thing is like literature online and not what people think of like creepypasta normally and it shows that creepypasta doesn't have to be like exclusively entertainment fantasy like fandom creating ip generating machine but you can like 
also make this kind of art and still get to do like the monster design if that's like what you want to do you still get to make like a wretched little man who saves the day or whatever and it's like let's make more personal art like we can take things we don't get uh, things that make us uncomfortable things that hurt us and turn it into art and like it becomes a conversation like with yourself that you invite other people to witness and like maybe even engage in yeah absolutely for all the problems mother horse eyes has every piece of art has problems but this is the kind of story that i wish young writers or amateur writers would take lessons from instead of the dreck that gets popular and that people end up wanting to imitate it's a story that's in a way kind of about the agony of trying to level up as a writer or as a creator because it's about the struggle to communicate. And even though we do bag on the story for good reasons, and I personally can't help being the kind of person who like rolls my eyes when people talk about craft in that like performative way that people often do, I, I would rather have young artists learn that they should value growth and, and the pain of growth over polish and and popularity and trends. I think with this being my second read-through, I've absorbed much more about Mother Horse Eyes than I did the first time. For everything else you can say about it, it still is a, a really compelling story, and it has a lot of interesting ideas and interesting emotions. And it's a smart story. Like, we talk about it being dumb and Nick being an idiot, like, both of these things are true at the same time. He is an idiot, and the story sucks, but it's also brilliant if you give it room to be. I think it's a huge mistake to just think of it as though it's like any other Reddit gore meat world whatever type story. Not only because it has this, like, innovative format that I still hugely respect, but also there's a level of genuine ambition that goes into the project. Like, that's why I'm as harsh on it as I am, and I think why you feel the same way because like we see that vision and and respect it so it makes it really awful when the story lets you down like I can never say that I love Mother Horse Eyes and I can't say that I hate it I just respect it I think it's valuable I think it's something that everyone should not just read but like read and think about if they're interested in writing stories like this one and I think more stories like the interface series should exist whatever that means. So we've made it to the end of Mother Horse Eyes. Congratulations everybody on making it this far. In honor of wrapping this story, we're going to be taking a short mid-season break, and we'll be returning on March 31st with a very special episode that I think you'll all be excited to see. I'd hate to ruin the surprise, but let's just say we may be revisiting the work of an author we've covered in the past. It's a small world, after all. This has been the Creepypasta Book Club. Thank you, and good night.